questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Well, 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 my listening friends, thanks for hanging in there after a hiatus. It is so good to be back on the microphone with you. Season 5, episode 68, and my, how the time is gone. Today I'm talking with Jonathan Merritt, who is one of America's most prolific religion and cultural writers. Jonathan currently serves as a contributing writer for The Atlantic and a contributing editor for The Week. He has published more than 3,500 articles in respected outlets such as The New York Times, USA Today, BuzzFeed, The Washington Post, and Christianity Today. As a respected voice, he regularly contributes commentary to television, print, and radio news outlets, and he has been interviewed by ABC World News, NPR, CNN, PBS, MSNBC, Fox News, and CBS's 60 Minutes. Wow, I have always wanted to interview somebody who was on 60 Minutes. That's really cool. Jonathan is also the author of several critically acclaimed books, including the one we will talk about today, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Jesus is Better Than You Imagined, and A Faith of Our Own, Following Jesus Beyond the Culture Wars. He has collaborated on or ghostwritten more than 50 additional books, with several of the titles landing on the New York Times or USA Today bestsellers list. In addition, Jonathan trains hundreds of young and emerging writers through his Write Brilliant course. He holds a Master of Divinity from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and a Master of Theology from Emory University's Candler School of Theology. He currently resides in Brooklyn, New York. So before I jump into the interview with Jonathan, I just wanted to say a few words about his book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. The subtitle is Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. Um, This is a really, really thoughtful book, and it's not just uh, the reflective questions of a journalist, but it's also including uh, the study and scholarship of his significant theological background uh, that I just described in his bio. From the back of the book, it says, In a rapidly changing culture, many of us struggle to talk about faith. We can no longer assume our friends understand words such as grace or gospel. Other words like lost and sin have become so negative they are nearly conversation enders. So it's with this idea of how to revive and recover sacred words that we jump into my conversation with Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan Merritt, thanks for taking time to talk with me today for the Restoring the Soul podcast. You're the author of many books and over a thousand articles in different news sources around the country. But you've written um, your most recent book called Learning to Speak God from Scratch, and it's subtitled Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. So first of all, welcome to the program and congratulations on this new book. Oh, thanks. I I appreciate it, and the pleasure is all mine. You actually wrote a question in your book. You said, what does it mean to speak God from scratch? And then the next sentence was, I guess it depends on whom you ask. 
And I loved that spirit at the beginning of this because it kind of acknowledged the fact that we all have an interpretation from our own perspective. So you've asked this question, and I really think you did a brilliant job with answering this from the perspective of a journalist. Uh, There's a real scholarly aspect to it where you really did your homework in terms of the theology and the Bible, but more than anything, it was just practical. And I found myself, as I read the book, just kind of wincing a couple times because I felt caught in terms of using faith words and religious words in ways that I was like, ooh, I don't want to do that. So that's all just to start. Uh, Tell me how this book came about. You know, the book came about because uh, I I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, and I had written three books uh, by the time I turned 30. And, you know, I guess uh, maybe I'm self-aware enough to know that a 30-year-old doesn't have 150,000 words of wisdom to give the world. So I had already gifted the world uh, far more than I had to gift. Uh, And so, you know, the, the Christian industrial complex has certain pressures and expectations of those of us who who write or, or speak or pastor or whatever. And one of those is, is you write a book every two years. That sort of has been the, the standard. And I thought, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to just start, you know, be, become the Christian Houdini, pulling a rabbit out of the hat every two years. I'm not doing it. And so I decided to just uh, wait, continue to write my articles, and one day, perhaps I would write again if I encountered something so important that I felt like I was the one uh, that, that I, if I didn't write it, the world would miss out on something. Uh, so that moment came when I relocated from Atlanta to New York City a few years ago and encountered this incredible spiritual crisis that I come to find out is one that, that millions of Americans, in fact, tens of millions of Americans probably, have, uh, have been through themselves, even if they don't recognize it. And tell me about that spiritual crisis, because in the book you described it as discovering a language barrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a language barrier, and that's going to sound a little weird to people, because people are going to think, well, where did you move? Did you move into, like, uh, Spanish Harlem or Polish Greenpoint? Or, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't that I could no longer converse at all. I could still speak English as well as I always had. It wasn't, it wasn't that. But I, as I say in the book, I could no longer speak God that having grown up in spiritual communities and being conversant in the vocabulary of faith, uh, I was not expecting that I would enter a context where I really struggled to use words uh, that I had considered to be central to who I was and to what I had committed to all of my life. And, you know, you, you meet people, and I've had a lot of people listening to this, they feel the same way. They will say, yeah, you know, I, I, I am a, a spiritual person, but I, I don't have a lot of spiritual conversations. In a given day, I'll, talk, I'll, I'll have water cooler talk about invoices and uh, profit and loss sheets. And uh, I, I, at home, I talk about whether or not the broccoli cheese casserole was on point or not. But in terms of having regular conversations about spirituality, about God, about faith, about the inner life, most people 
uh, I was talking to said, yeah, I feel the same tension uh, that you're feeling. And I started to feel, you know, as a writer, I always, I look for what I call pings. They're kind of echoes, the same phrasing, the same words, the same ideas over and over and over. And I was hearing those pings when I would talk to people. People would describe the way they felt. And it would be people from all over. It'd be a a friend who lived on the beach in Southern California and a, and a youth pastor in uh, the Midwest and, and uh, friends who, who lived in flyover states, who, who worked in uh, accounting. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, something seems to be happening here. And that's when I decided, I hadn't quite yet decided to write a book on it, but what I did decide was I put my journalist hat on and I said, okay, I need to dig deeper. I need to see uh, how far this runs. I need to see if I'm self-selecting these stories because of my friend group. I have to do a little bit of research. And you did begin to do research. <laughs> mm-hmm. And tell me what you discovered. Well, the first thing that I discovered was that sacred words are vanishing. Uh, they are disappearing from usage in the English-speaking world. Uh, Google, you know, these days, everything's like the six degrees of Google, right? It's like everything gets back to Google. And and so goes this conversation, this topic. Google has compiled the data. They call it Google Ingram data, where they have, hey, they have scanned in all of the books and the magazines and the public speeches and transcripts and records and blogs and internet pages going back to 1500. Whatever is available in the English speaking world, they've scanned it in and they've made it searchable. And that's important because now anyone, a five-year-old living in Pig's Knuckle, Arkansas with internet connection can go on, search, and find the frequency of any word's usage at any point in history. Wow. What we, what we found is, and a lot of people, there's a, the, uh, the Journal of um, Adult Psychology, uh, there was one, I'll have, to, uh, I'll have to look it up. In fact, actually, it's here in the book that I'm holding. But there's a, there was a journal that even uh, analyzed this and started like punching this in and uh, cataloging it. Yeah, the Journal of Positive Psychology. Uh, and, they, and all of these peer-reviewed journals start analyzing this data when it became available. And what they found was is that there has been a, not only a, uh, has language become less spiritual, but just in general, it's become less moral. That, that not only have words like atonement or salvation, you know, these big meaty theological words, they've declined, no surprise there. But also just general virtue words like courage and compassion, kindness words have all decreased by up to 50%. The word grace uh, has plummeted. Uh, And so I thought, oh my gosh, there's a shift. There's a shift that's going on in the English language. And I haven't heard anybody talk about this. I haven't heard it. I haven't seen anybody write about this. And that prompted me to go even a step deeper into the data. And I commissioned a nationwide survey of over a thousand Americans and asked them, how often do you have a spiritual religious conversation? What I found was, even though most of us, we claim to be either religious or spiritual or both, even though the vast majority of Americans, 70.6% claim to be Christian. Only 7% of Americans say that they have a spiritual or religion, religious conversation regularly. And that's like once a week. Only 7%. When you look at practicing Christians, I thought, well, surely, you know, practicing Christians, you get the real righteous folk in the room. Now that number is going to skyrocket. No, nope, it didn't. It went, to eight, it went to 13%. 
So in other words, if you go into your average church and you've got all your church going friends, all the most faithful people show up that day and you look around, one in eight, only one in eight has enough confidence to have a spiritual conversation once a week. Now, most of us, we talk about the things we love. We talk about the things that impact us, the things we care about. You love the Yankees? Well, then you're going to talk about the Yankees. You love your job? You love your, your kids? If you, listen, if you don't think that that's just sort of a human principle, go up to someone who's had a baby recently. They'll tell you all about their baby, whether you want to hear about it or not, <laughs> because they love their baby. And how weird would it be if you had known somebody for five or 10 years, and then one day you just found out that they happened to have a spouse and four kids and had never even talked about them? You'd think something was wrong. Well, that is what's happening in America. There is a connection within all humans between passions and beliefs and articulation. But when it comes to spiritual conversations, that process, that mechanism has broken down. It's fritzed out. And so I wanted to know exactly why that had happened, did it matter, and what could be done about it. Great questions for a journalist. The ultra-conservative or fundamentalist might say, well, this is all just the result of godlessness and secularism, and, and, uh, and yet you pointed out that it's right within the churches that that's happening. So as you ask those questions about why the words are vanishing, what did you discover? Well, I found, a, I found that you, you get a, a host of reasons. Some people, they, it's sort of, they, they have a lot of different answers. Some people will say uh, spiritual or religious conversations seem to create tension or arguments. Fair enough. If you've, ever, uh, if you've ever been at Thanksgiving and Uncle Philip's been shaking a drumstick at you, arguing about what the Bible says, you know, like, it's not really something that's always a pleasant to talk about. Other people say that a religious language has become too politicized. They, they have heard uh, political preachers and presidents um, use religious language to campaign, to mobilize a constituency, a voter's block. They've, they've seen uh, religious language be co-opted in the public square, and they go, nah, no thanks. Uh, I, I don't want to be associated with that. Other people say, I've been hurt uh, by this language. I'm sure, I bet you, I bet you, if your walls could talk, I bet you could tell some stories of people who their pastor or their parent had used sacred words to shame them or to oppress them, to scold them, and they were singed by these words. And so now the connotation of these words is, is negative. It, 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 it's triggering. They have this almost like this PTSD reaction because they, of the way that these words were used. And they say, no, thanks. No, thank you. I know that these words, you know, Solomon said that words, uh, that the power of the tongue is the power to, to give life or death. And too many people have touched the hymn of the Grim Reaper's garment through religious language, and they say, no thanks. Uh, and it's tough to blame them. So, so there are a, a range of reasons that people give. 
uh, 13 uh, that we point out in the book, the 13 top reasons. Some people just flat out avoid them. Some people don't understand what they mean anymore. And some people, for one reason or another, they, they've just become toxic for them. And I bet you, most people, I would guess, listening to this, if you're like the rest of us, if you stopped and asked yourself, how often do I have spiritual conversations? Most people would say, not that often. If you're at once, if you are at even once a week on average, you're killing it. But then if I were to ask you why not, I bet you've never even asked that question. Why, why do you not have a spiritual conversation when it could come up, when you know it could help you? Uh, 35% of Americans say they've made a big change in their life because of a conversation about faith. We know these have power. Why not? Most people have never asked that question. And Jonathan, I want to kind of back up the truck for a minute. Um, what are you defining as a spiritual conversation? Because there's certain people from certain ministries or backgrounds that would say that unless you share the four spiritual laws and prevent or present some kind of you know road to salvation, mm-hmm. that that's not a spiritual conversation. Right. Yeah. Because a lot of people would say, oh, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about evangelism. You're talking about trying to convert people. Right. I guess that would be included in that question. You know, if I say to a, to a, uh, a more evangelical Christian, if I say, have you had a spiritual conversation this week? And somebody says, yes, they may be referring to uh, an effort to convert someone or witness or whatever. If you talk to an Episcopalian or a mystic or uh, a liberal Catholic, they're not going to think about that. They'll, they'll think about a different kind of thing. And so I, what I did was I, I made sure, and, I, and with Barna Group, the company that, that uh, did the poll for me, um, we made sure to made, make the question uh, open enough so that whatever someone would mean by that would count. So, you know, I was seeing that the words were declining. But what I thought was, well, what if somebody is using a word that doesn't show up as a spiritual word? You know, you go into a lot of churches today and someone will say, you need to get into a uh, community group. You need, to, you need to get into a Sunday school class because you've got to invest in people around you. Well, invest is an economic word, but that actually is coming up in the context of a, of a spiritual conversation. How do you know the difference? Well, the speaker will know. The speaker will know if it's a spiritual conversation or not. And uh, that's, that's an admittedly a broad term, uh, spiritual or religious conversation, a broad phrase. But I really left it up to the people we were asking to define that uh, as, as, as they saw fit. Sounds like underneath all of this research, um, despite the, the very stark statistics of how often even Christians have those conversations, about 13%, you're assuming that there is a spiritual hunger where people want to be having these conversations. You started uh, the book with a quote from David Brooks, who's one of my favorite op-ed writers at the New York Times. And my understanding is that he's a a secular Jew and writing from that perspective. uh, The quote you included says, many adults hunger for meaning and goodness, but lack a spiritual vocabulary to think things through. So would you assume that there's this hunger there, but we just don't have the words? Yeah, well, what, you, what, what we find is, is that people are, 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 are spiritually curious enough to do other things, right? So let's say at, at an, any given Sunday, a quarter of the population is getting up, getting dressed, going to church, 
giving money, dropping some dollar bills in the, in the basket, whatever it is, every week. You know, in, in, a, in, a, in a span, you may have 40, 45% of Americans who go to a religious service. Uh, even among the, spirit, the so-called spiritual but not religious, which is particularly a popular uh, uh, demographic uh, or, or, or uh, identifier among millennials. In fact, it's the fastest growing religious identifier among millennials is unaffiliated. So the spiritual but not religious, most of them say, uh, 60% of them say they pray regularly. So there's enough passion about these things that they're doing things. It's leading to action. It's not that they don't care. And if you ask people how important uh, spirituality is to their lives, many Americans will say quite important. They say it's important to them and it's leading to certain kind of behavior patterns. The one thing that it's not translating to is uh, is our, our conversational patterns. And so when I saw it breaking down really only in one area, yes, uh, church attendance is declining. And, and if, you, uh, if you actually look at this data, uh, one of the smaller numbers was that people said, that they're they're just not religious. That was only only about twenty three percent of people said I'm not religious and I don't care about those kinds of topics. So seventy seven percent of people who don't speak God say I'm religious in some regard and I do care about these topics, but I don't talk about them. Now, for a lot of people, you listen to that, you may say, Why does that matter? Uh, I think it does matter. Uh, and that was, that was a big question that I explored in the book. Yeah, and that was my next question, actually, is, and you have a chapter by this name, Why Speaking God Matters. And you go in some fascinating directions there, both looking at linguistics and culture and history. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so I, I spent a year, this book was a, about a four and a half year process, and uh, I spent a whole year studying linguistics. And um, when I was studying it, what I found was there was this emerging body of research that was showing this tight connection between the words we speak, the languages we speak, and the thoughts we think, and our behavior patterns. So in other words, we used to think like, well, everybody kind of has this capability for language, and there was kind of this, you know, Noam Chomsky-esque uh, universal language acquisition model. Uh, I don't go into this in the book, so if that if that even that phrase uh, starts to put you to sleep, don't worry. But uh, <laughs> there is this emerging body of research now that says, depending on the the language that you speak, will shape you in a way that the language someone else speaks doesn't shape them. They'll be shaped in a different way. Let me give you an example. I'll make it really practical, and I give you an example from the book. English is a futured language. We have a future tense, right? Yesterday I said, I will go on a podcast tomorrow. So I have a futured language. Uh, I've got friends here from Taiwan. They, there's not, it's not a futured language. A lot of Asian languages are not futured. They just have go. I go on podcast. And you have to use other words and contexts to determine whether you're referring to yesterday, today, tomorrow, sometime in the future, sometime in the past. So we're very futured. Everything's locked in. There's always a tense associated with the verb. Okay, who cares? Well, I, actually, it matters a lot. Because we, are a, we speak a futured language, when you compare us to a non-futured language culture, you find 
that by and large, we Americans think more often about the future. We're thinking about the future because we're talking about the future. It goes even further. When you compare a futured language culture to a non-futured language culture, you find that by and large, we will practice more safe sex per capita. We will smoke less per capita. We will save more for retirement per capita. Even our conceptions of the future self uh, is going to be uh, different than someone who doesn't have a future tense. The way that we prepare for death uh, is different because we're, we're, we're thinking about the future. Everything is oriented toward the future. What does that mean? Well, it means if you're listening to this and you say, I think the inner life is important. I think spirituality is important. Then you have to, if it stands to reason that if we don't talk about God, if we don't talk about faith, if we don't talk about the inner life or spirituality, then our minds are less attuned to transcendence. We, 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 don't, we don't even see, you know, a lot of people say, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I saw God show up everywhere. And now I'm an adult and, you know, maybe I, don't, I don't really see God doesn't show up the way God used to. Yeah, could be, could be. Or maybe because you failed to, to stoke that fire in your imagination, God's working all around you and you just don't even see it because your mind's no longer attuned to transcendence. You've stopped speaking God. Even far beyond that is, is that our behavior patterns will not be shaped according to those principles. Now, let's think about this. Let's say you're listening to this and you're not all that religious, okay? Well, remember, the language that's falling out of usage is not just religion. It's also general virtue language. If we are not talking about courage, and increasingly we're not, if we're not talking about compassion, if we're not talking about kindness, if we're not talking about grace, then downstream from that is we are going to have, and I would say we are already having, uh, we're already seeing a less courageous, a less compassionate, a less kind, a less gracious culture. And all of us are frustrated about the, the, oh man, this world is just going to hell in a handbasket. And what we have failed to realize is, is that the problem is, at least in part, rhetorical. Yeah, you quoted Thornton Wilder. Uh, I think the quote is something like, the revival in religion will be a rhetorical one. Um, and so you agree with that statement. Yeah, he wrote that, uh, he wrote that uh, in, the, in the, uh, the Great Depression. And he was a playwright, but he's also turned out to be a prophet. He was many, many years ahead of his time. I mean, uh, if you would have read his quote in the 1950s, uh, at the height of American civil religion, you might have laughed at that. Uh, but today, here, you know, nearly a hundred years later, we're seeing, oh my gosh, he he saw it coming. He was seeing that we are going to have to rethink the way our language works, the 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 things that our words point to, and that is where really where the book I would say takes off is leading people to consider that maybe, just maybe, we need to reimagine these words together in community for our day. 
Yeah, boy, I want to talk about that in just a minute because you said that ultimately where we need to go with this is through imagination and courage with words. Um, but when you talked about the world going to hell in a handbasket, I just thought, you know, so how often have I spoken about the, the lack of civility in politics or culture, and yet I've never considered that it's not, quote, them, it's the fact that there's a... Uh, a deficiency in the language that we use mm -hmm. to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And not only that, this is one of the reasons why if you're someone who says, I don't use these words, I don't have these conversations because of what these things have come to mean. Consider for a moment that you might be contributing to the problem itself. Because when you fail to speak God, the, that toothy televangelist, that gives you the holy heebie-jeebies, you <laughs> still keep speaking God. That pious politician who's misusing religious language to coerce an electorate, that person will still keep speaking God. And there will be nobody to challenge those people because, well, the rest of us, we've stopped speaking God. And so what often happens is, is we have this uh, fear of speaking God because of the ways that religious words have been used. But in our effort not to contribute to the problem, we actually make it much worse. So before we get into the how to speak God, you, you do some really, I thought, creative uh, approaches when you talked about the three different ways that we handle uh, speaking about God, fossilization, substitution, and transformation. Can you real quickly go through those as a launching pad to how to speak God? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, when I was going through and studying linguistics, I became obsessed with this notion of dying languages. You know, every year, many, many languages die, just, just is snuffed out every year. And I wanted to know, oh, how do languages die? What, what happens when, when a language dies? So that I could see really what was at stake. Uh, what I found was is that there are a number of languages that are sort of living languages that die every year. But there's also a small percentage of languages that are what linguists call comeback languages. These are languages that... Um, were on the brink of extinction and somehow they came back. They were revived. You know, the, as I say in the book, it, 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 living languages can die, but as I found out, a dying language could also be revived. Well, what makes the difference? The difference is how speakers respond. So there are a lot of people out there, the first response, which is a very bad response, is what you're going to find if you're, let's say you're a conservative evangelical, probably this is what you're going to run into, which is called fossilization, or I call fossilization. That's where you say, don't touch my words. You've, you've sort of taken your words and the meanings ascribed to them, and you've put them in liquid amber. Uh, great example I, I often give, and I'm not busting on this tradition, but there are a lot of uh, new Calvinist churches. They have very uh, strict, rigid views on words when it comes to words like salvation or sovereignty. If you walk into one of those churches and you say, hey, I don't think that maybe, maybe we haven't really understood what this word means or should mean in our day. Well, you're not going to be around long because, 
they're not open to, to imagining that word or critiquing the meaning they've attached to that word. They've already figured it out. Their job is, is merely to convince you to accept their definition for it. Well, one thing that I realized was is linguists are probably like counselors and like columnists. They don't agree on a lot, but they do agree on this. Every language will either change or it will die. Every language is always moving toward either evolution or extinction. And there are no exceptions to this. So uh, saying the way that I've understood this word is unchallengeable and nothing, no conception can ever change uh, is one of the fastest ways to kill a language, to just obliterate a vocabulary. And that's true when it comes to sacred speech. The second approach, which you're going to get among a lot of progressives, a lot of post-evangelicals, a lot of uh, mainliners, you're going to get this approach that I call substitution. And I, I critique two people in the book that I, I really respect, Rob Bell and Barbara Brown Taylor, because, and by the way, each, all of these approaches typically have good intentions behind them. The heart is, 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 the posture of the heart is right, but it still misses the mark. So when you run into substitution, it says, well, I'm just not going to use these words anymore. That this, uh, in this, in the case of Rob and uh, Barbara, they say, well, the word God, I'm just not using the word God anymore because I, you know, some people don't like what that means and it's not, they don't understand it. And so I'm just not going to use that. And so then you walk into churches, like I talked to a guy today who was living in LA and he said, "I, I go to a Christian church and everybody just keeps talking about the universe you know, oh, the universe is just in your favor, or the universe did X, Y, and Z. And he's like, they're using this concept to mean the same thing that God meant, but they're just using it as a replacement word. That's substitution. And what you've done is, is it's sort of a sleight of hand that doesn't solve the problem. You don't trigger people on the face, but the problem with that word was the concept that it came to represent bothered you in some way, but rather than deal with the concept, you've just switched out the word. And it may point to largely the same concept for you. So substitution doesn't work. It, will, it tends to strip a vocabulary down. There are fewer and fewer words that you can speak, and then you end up not speaking them at all. And for people who are, if you're Christian especially, or if you're Jewish or you're Muslim or uh, we, 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 you know, we, those three religions in particular fancy ourselves people of the book. We have a sacred text. So if you don't like the word sin, cool. But eventually, if you come back to the text, you're going to keep bumping into it again, and you're eventually going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to figure out, what is this word? Why do I not like it? And is there a way to use it that is life-giving and not soul-sucking? And uh, you're, you're just merely avoiding it by by substituting that word. So, so whereas a fossilization protects words, uh, substitution will pitch words. And then I argue for transformation, and that's where we begin to play with words. You said that transformation is a much riskier road. Why is it more risky? It's risky for a number of reasons, uh, because it is less, it's riskier for the individual because you are risking the sacrifice of something you love. I love a lot of the words I was handed. And, uh, you know, there's a great quote uh, uh, of one of my podcasts, a guest had, had referred me to this by uh, Karen Armstrong. 
of our of all people who says you know we come to our conceptions of god around the same age that we come to our conceptions of santa claus the only difference is is we eventually outgrow the santa claus myth but our conceptions of god our childhood conceptions of god we often keep through adulthood mm. And as this person said, yeah, and those conceptions often don't work very well for us anymore. But there's a real risk in just like when you decide to tell your child, hey, the Santa Claus, I'm Santa Claus. That's risky. It's going to end in a lot of tears. There's going to be grief. There's going to be the death of an idea. Uh, you as a counselor might might be able to tell me whether belief in Santa Claus is even healthy for a child in the long run. Well, wait, I'm, I'm sitting here going, there's no Santa Claus? And you oh, know, right. You've just devastated thousands of uh, potential listeners. Your, your sweet wife who still gets out of the bed and places the gifts <laughs> under the tree every, uh, every Christmas Eve at midnight. So I think for a lot of people, it's risky in that it will insert chaos into a, an ordered neat, tidy, prepackaged system that may not, if you stop to think about it, really be working for you. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com 